Well, good morning, everyone. Great. We are continuing a series that we are in called Our English Bible, where we hope to explore through a historical lens how the Word of God has been translated into our own native tongue and been distributed to the church. Today is our last lesson uh, before we take a summer break. So this time next week, we will not be here for... Christian education classes. But it's been a pleasure going through this series with you all and, and talking about Holy Scripture and how we see it defended and preserved throughout history. Uh, today our focus is going to be on William Tyndale, who first translated the Word of God from its original languages into English. Uh, and uh, to start, I want to open the Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. So if you wanted to take a second to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And I'll begin reading at verse 30. This is God's word. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith... The harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samson, Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Till others Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And that is God's word from Hebrews 11. Here we see the end of what some might call the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews. And we see that all those who had gone before... uh, that the the Apostle Paul is writing about to the Hebrew Christians had not obtained the promise, the fulfillment of the promises of God. Now that fulfillment is seen in the personal work of Jesus Christ. William Tyndale lived in a New Testament economy in uh, in the 16th century where the promise was obtained but was unfortunately not available to the masses in the written word of God in a language that they could read and understand. So as we go through this lesson, we're going to see how in Tyndale's life he was persecuted and pursued, 
dwelt outside of his own country, um, all for the purpose of providing a vernacular Bible to the English-speaking people. So let me pray to begin our time. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we do have the written word, special revelation, committed wholly unto writing so that we can study and worship you rightly. Father, help us to be renewed in our minds, to look to the testimony of history as a testimony of your faithfulness to your people, and help us, Lord, to now be inspired to a greater appreciation and a greater dependence on your words. For the very words of God provide life and change hearts. All these things we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. So in April, we concluded a systematic walkthrough of the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith on the doctrine of Holy Scripture. And I've been reading portions of the eighth paragraph of the first chapter in order to just remind us why translating the Scriptures is just all, all too important. So let me read from the eighth paragraph of the first chapter of the Westminster Confession. But because these original tongues, being Hebrew and Greek, are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto and interest in the scriptures are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. In addition to the Westminster's exhortation to translate the Holy Scriptures, if you were part of that series we did on the Westminster Confession, you may recall the concept that the Bible's exposition of Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation is crucial. It's necessary, as our observations of nature and perceptions of reality are insufficient to save. You might also recall the concept that those basic saving truths contained in the pages of Holy Scripture are able to be understood and cherished by even the most incapable, illiterate, and unlearned among us. This understanding is the bedrock on which the church can and will, by God's grace, grow, reform, evangelize, and conquer, knowing that the Lord has supplied not only the means, but the victory through Christ Jesus. The reformers of the 16th century, and as we also understand of the 14th and the 15th century as well, with John Wycliffe in England, but the reformers of the 16th century fought a battle with Rome, who believed that the task of translating God's word was too dangerous to undertake, too insurmountable for any man, and that God's words themselves were too difficult for any laity to understand as is clearly perceived in Rome's written stances throughout history. Uh, We talked last week and the week before about uh, Bishop Thomas Arundel's Constitutions Against the Lollards, written in the 15th century, very clearly outlying that the law of England is forbidding, and in Tyndale's day this law continued, forbidding the production, translation, ownership, reading of any translated treatise, pamphlet, scripture, etc., etc., and was only to be approved by an ordinary or a local bishop. Yes, Art? You, you always hear about crossing the red line. That was the red line. That was the red line for them, was possession and, and being, being able to read God's word for themselves. And if you also recall, the persecution 
of the day extended even to just individual small families who were trying to teach their children the Ten Commandments of God. Uh, in 1519, I believe the year was, uh, several people were burnt at Coventry, England for just simply participating in family worship in their native tongue. Rome did have cause for concern in one sense. God does not share his lordship. In another sense, making the scriptures available in a new language is no little thing. It is to be done fearfully, diligently, with meticulous attention to detail, in order to faithfully communicate the very words of God. We have discussed in the past how some modern editions of the Bible fit more into the category of paraphrase and commentary rather than literal translation. And I am making a personal judgment when I say that there have been instances of so-called translations being published without an appropriate exercise of godly fear and trembling in the translation of them. Translating also ought to be done with an acute understanding of the original languages of Scripture, Koine Greek and Hebrew. Greek in the sense of the New Testament, Hebrew for the Old Testament. There's a reason that we uh, strive and promote uh, an educated clergy in the original languages so that they can expound upon the Word of God in an educated way. The translator also ought to exhibit scholarly understanding of the language he intends to translate into. I think many of us would be surprised with how much we don't know if we were to step back into a classroom teaching AP English, especially regarding grammar terms like preposition and participle, antecedent, conjunction, and syntax. It's tough words. William Tyndale was a renowned linguist. Able to speak and write in seven different languages, and some testified in his lifetime as if he was a native of these languages. Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, French, and English. In his exile from England, self-imposed exile, he also was studying German in order to communicate and treat Luther at times as well. He was a student of both Oxford and Cambridge. He certainly possessed the skill. He was a skilled man. But what about godly fear and trembling? Did Tyndale exhibit this attitude? I'm going to read a little bit from this book. It's, an, uh, it's a foreword by John Piper. And Piper writes, comparing Tyndale and Erasmus. Both were concerned with corruption and abuses in the Catholic Church. And both wrote about Christ and the Christian life. Tyndale even translated Erasmus's Enchidrion, a kind of spiritual handbook for the Christian life, what Erasmus himself called the Philosopher Christi. But there was a massive difference between these two men. And it had directly to do with the other half of a paradox, namely that we must die not just to the intellectual and linguistic laziness, but also to human presumption, human self-exaltation, and self-sufficiency. Erasmus and Luther had clashed in the 1520s over the freedom of the will. Erasmus defending human self-determination 
and Luther arguing for the depravity and bondage of the will. Tyndale was firmly with Luther here. He says, Our will is locked and knit faster under the will of the devil than could a hundred thousand chains bind a man unto a post. Because by nature we are evil, therefore we both think and do evil. And under vengeance under and under and are under vengeance and under the law convict to eternal damnation by the law and are contrary to the will of God and in our will and in all things consent to the will of the fiend it is not possible for natural man to consent to the law that it should be good so that God should be righteous which maketh the law this view of Tyndale on the human sinfulness set the stage for his grasp of God's glory and his sovereign grace through the gospel. Erasmus and Thomas More, with him, did not see the depth of the human condition, their own condition, and so did not see the glory and the explosive power of, a, of what the reformers of the 16th century saw in the New Testament. What reformers like Tyndale and Luther saw, was not a philosopher Christie, but the massive work of God in the death and resurrection of Christ to save hopelessly enslaved and hell-bound sinners. Erasmus does not write in this realm of horrible condition and gracious blood-bought salvation. He has the appearance, appearance of reform, but something is missing. To walk from Erasmus into Tyndale is to move to paraphrase Mark Twain of all people, from a lightning bug to a lightning bolt. Where Luther and Tyndale were blood earnest about our dreadful human condition and the glory of salvation in Christ, Erasmus and Thomas More joked and bantered. When Luther published his 95 theses in 1517, Erasmus sent a copy of them to More, along with a jocular letter including anti-papal games and witty satirical diatribes against abuses of the church, which both of them loved to make. By all accounts, Tyndale, uh, in his time in university, and his time in exile, was dedicated in, in the fear and trembling of God. Last week, we also discussed the means by which the Lord made the time right for translation work. The printing press by the 16th century was in common use. Type, movable block type, was in different languages at the time, where before it was just German. Universities such as Oxford and Cambridge were hotbeds for theological debate and thought. Erasmus's Greek New Testament was available and provided a medium where people were studying God's word in Greek and challenging the long-held status quo of the Latin Vulgate and Renaissance ideas of humanism and nationalism were also on the rise in Europe, challenging the power of the Roman church. So we see the canvas, if you will, ready to be painted. We have the skilled artisan in William Tyndale. We certainly see the demand for God's word in the vernacular. What Tyndale lacked was the endorsement, an endorsement that Tyndale would originally seek from within the walls of the clergy in England, but would later appeal directly to the king of England, Henry VIII himself. Tyndale would continue to sing one note, 
that note being that he would only return to England if the king, that he would only return to England at the king's summoning, even, if the king would authorize an English Bible to be distributed to every parish in the kingdom. Tyndale would continue to sing this one note all the way to his death. His last recorded words, as John Fox tells us in his Book of Martyrs, are, O Lord, open the King of England's eyes. So let us, uh, if there are no questions before we start, let us dive into the history of this man. And we're going to try to sum up as much as we can with the little time that we have together. Tyndale was born in Gloucester, England, sometime between 1490 and 1495. Back then, birth records and many other records were not as um, centralized or easy to access as they are today. Little, he was born a little bit more a century after John Wycliffe's death. I have a book here, one of the books I've been using for this study is called The Masters of the English Reformation. And this was published in, I think, 1955 by a man named Sir Marcus Loan. And I think this book, yeah, this book was published um, to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the martyrdoms of Hugh Latimer and uh, and Nicholas Ridley, which were later martyrs in England. Uh, But he does say a lot about Tyndale in here. Uh, He's one of the masters of the English Reformation, according to Loan. But he writes about his childhood. No records now remain of Tyndale's school days or the kind of education he must have received. But there is one suggestive allusion in his own works that deserves mention. Tyndale writes, Except my memory fail me, that I have forgotten what I have read when I was a child, thou shalt find in the English Chronicle how that king, Athelstane, caused the Holy Scripture to be translated into the tongue that was then in England. He seems to have confused... This is Loan again. Tyndale seems to, have, seems to have confused Athelstane with Alfred, who Alfred, in the old English language, actually did translate portions of the Scripture for his, his local court. But the re- recollection is a valuable sidelight into his boyhood. It is our glimpse... It is our one glimpse at the lad evidently fond of reading, reading, storing in his mind with such items of history and artlessly disclosing his life's master passion as a boy. Tyndale would go on in his boyhood to be brought up as a student of the University of Oxford, where he commonly is thought to have entered as a student in 1505, which if you do a little bit of math, means that he entered the university somewhere between 10 and 15 years old. His time at Oxford provided him with great exposure to humanist ideas and a study of the classics, which was on the rise in Europe. With several of his classmates traveling to and returning from Italy with good reports about the new learning, quote-unquote, of the Renaissance, humanism, nationalism, a restoration and claiming of the classics. Tyndale would go on to graduate with a Bachelor's of Arts in 1512 and a Master's of Arts in 1515, which means that he spent 10 years of education at Oxford. He was also ordained into the priesthood at some point in this time frame. 
He continued on in 1516 to transfer his learning to Cambridge, where um, some in the time wrote that Cambridge was quickly becoming the, the higher center of learning in England than Oxford, which are two rival universities in England, very very prominent in the day, they're prominent today. Um, but in 1516, what was also made available was the Novum Instrumentum, being the published New Greek or Greek New Testament uh, that Erasmus published. It became available for study, and soon, also, Luther's 95 Theses would circulate a year later. Cambridge, as well as other universities, became centers to discuss religious reform. Outside Cambridge being the famous White Horse Inn, where young reformers would gather to discuss Reformation thought and Lutheran ideas, so much so that the White Horse Inn became known as Little Germany. That was kind of its nickname. We don't have every detail about Tyndale's university learning, but it is commonly recorded that Tyndale was well-liked and commended for his preaching, which preaching had largely... um, which his preaching largely outshined the typical sermon, as preaching had long fallen into shameful neglect in the church by this time. After all of his studies and formative years in schooling, Tyndale would later go on to take a post tutoring the children of Sir John Walsh at Sodbury. In the home of this nobleman, Sir John Walsh, is where Tyndale's famous confrontation is said to have taken place over a meal. I'm going to read a little bit from Loan to kind of highlight what this man was like and some of the things that he was experiencing. So Loan writes, He, being Tyndale, sat with Sir John Walsh at his table, where he dined with deans, and abbots, and archdeacons. And he often heard them discussing the new learning or the views of men like Luther and Erasmus. But when the table talk turned to the scriptures, Tyndale would speak his own mind with perfect frankness. He would often differ from such dignitaries. And he always offered them simple words of scripture as his reason for the hope that was now in him. It was disconcerting for those accredited leaders of the church to be brought back to the text of scriptures by a humble tutor. Wealthy clerics and lordly abbots, whose learning was now rusty from long disuse, would fret at the very mention of the odious heresies which sprung from Martin Luther, and they would writhe at the shrewd and determined arguments of an obscure scholar like Tyndale at table. They soon grew tired of such disputes and formed a grudge against Tyndale. It was in his own self-defense that he prepared his first translation, having chosen the once famous work of Erasmus called the Enchidrion, or the Manual of the Christian Soldier, as some called it. He did not send it to the press, but he gave it to his hosts to read. They did this in private and were convinced. Quote, the doctorly prelates were no more so often called to the house, neither had they the cheer and countenance 
when they came as before they had, wrote Fox. Which thing, they marking and well perceiving and supposing no less, but it came by the means of Master Tyndale, refrained themselves, and at the law utterly withdrew and came no more. It seems that the manuscript of this translation of Tyndale's passed from hand to hand in London until it was consigned to the flames with the other papers when he was denounced as a heretic later in his life. But he had scored his first success in the lists of controversy and had gained favor in the house of Sir John Walsh and his lady. Neither did he confine himself to reading and debate at home. He soon became active as a preacher in open air by nearby hamlets. But little Sodbury, Sir Walsh's estate, was not more than 15 miles from Bristol, which was the second city of all of England behind London. He soon began to repair to Bristol as John Purvey had long since done and to preach to crowds at the College Green just in front of the Augustinian Covenant or convent. This was a bold challenge to the priests and to the friars who still felt sore from their discomfort at his master's table and his conduct would come under fire from the bar of the alehouse where they, where they could mouth threats without fear of contradictions. These blind and rude priests, as John Fox declares, ragged and railed against him at the bar. They would not preach themselves, nor would they allow others to preach, but they soon hatched a plot which was meant to wreck the whole career, and charge of heresy was brought against him before the chancellor. Tyndale was kept in the dark, as so to the nature of the accusation, so that he, by the way, is going there, uh, there forward, cried in his mind heartily to God to give him strength to stand fast in truth of his word. But the accusers, who had laid their charge in private, remained in the background. And it was the chancellor of the college in Bristol who would confront Tyndale himself. He threatened me grievously, Tyndale recalled in after years, and reviled me, and rated me as though, I'd, as though I had been a dog, and laid my charge, whereof there could be none accuser, no accuser brought forth. But he vindicated himself with such ability that he left the court a free man, neither branded as a heretic nor fettered by an oath of abjur abjuration. But he could not ignore the red warning lights that he could only anticipate danger and death if he were to persist in this opposition to the local clergy. Tyndale knew that the priests would soon return to attack and that neither Sir John Walsh nor any other friend could shield him once he fell into their hands. It would have been just as foreign to this nature to seek refuge in a qualified uh, restus as it would have been to make terms with ignorant bigotry. The whole affair would give rise to serious reflection for Tyndale. He had derived his own faith that the book, which was honored as the perfect standard of truth, being the Holy Scriptures, and he found that it is confirmed by the authority of ancient fathers and modern scholars alike. Why did this cause such offense? Why was the sense of offense confined to the local clergy? This raised wider questions for Tyndale. Were the ruling authorities of the church in were the ruling authorities of the church in opposition to plain law of the scriptures? 
He knew neither what to think nor how to reply to such problems as they began to force themselves upon his mind. He was ahead of most men in the age in his vision and grasp of reality. For as yet the Reformation had, produced, had not produced any vernacular version of the scriptures. Not at this point. Such an undertaking would be quite as novel and at least as adventurous as the voyage of Sebastian Cabot from nearby Bristol in search of anything in the unknown beyond sea. But the idea took firm hold in his mind in these formative years. And his leisurely hours were absorbed in the fields of study. He knew that John Wycliffe had based his work off the Latin Vulgate, which had been drawn up by Jerome a thousand years before. But he saw quite plainly that his work must be based on the Greek text of the Novum Instrumentum of 1516 or of 1519. He could hardly know that Martin Luther, at the very same time, was even engaged in the preparation of his own German translation of the scriptures. Fox tells us that it was this time that he fell into dispute with a certain man who boldly affirmed that men would be better without the laws of God than they would without the laws of the Pope at John Walsh's table. Tyndale's reply show that the uh, show that the die had now been cast beyond recall. Tyndale replied to this man saying, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. He said, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. Tyndale would go on from here to request license to translate the scriptures from the Bishop of London, Bishop Tunstall. And Tyndale, from accounts and written accounts, was, was pretty excited about this approach and, and request for license to, to translate. Uh, but unfortunately, his request was denied to no avail. In this time frame, there was a peasants' uprising in Germany that many believed was due to Reformation ideas. I think some in England were, were ready not to, not to jump on board with the translation work and Reformation ideas. Bishop Tunstall denied his request, and in his realizations, the red warning lights that Tyndale was receiving, he concluded that in order to uh, translate the scriptures and to uh, undertake this work, he needed to go out of the country, and he decided to take, uh, take leave to the place where both the printing press of the 16th century, or sorry, uh, where both the printing press and the 16th century Reformation originated. He left for Hamburg, Germany in 1524, which was a large bustling city in Germany, and later uh, then went to Cologne, where there were multiple printing houses that had connections to markets in England. Tyndale would translate, publish, and smuggle banned books into England operating outside of the law to accomplish God's purposes. He didn't need an endorsement from the church in order to make God's words available. Plans were made to print 3,000 copies of his translated New Testament for import in Cologne. He was busy making contracts and consignments, finding who, which printing houses were sympathetic to Reformation thought, 
and the plan was to smuggle in at least 3,000 copies of the New Testament for import. However, in Cologne, the secret plans were leaked to local senates, believed to have been revealed to local authorities through drunken revelry at pub houses. The local senate ordered the operation to halt, and the story goes that Tyndale barely had time to gather his source documents and prints in order to flee uh, and evade capture. uh, Tyndale fled to the city of Worms on the Rhine River, of all places. It was Worms where Luther famously stood before the Diet and a city that had solidly swung in the direction of the Reformation. It was a natural choice for Tyndale to go there. From here, thousands of New Testaments in English were smuggled into England via barrels, sacks of grain, and cases of any kind. Many German merchants had built large-scale trade in prohibited literature from the Reformation. Tyndale would continue his work, writing and distributing other works by this t- um, by other titles. One book that he, he wrote and disseminated was called The Obedience of the Christian Man, which stands out as, as his longest personal writing and one of the most influential books published in the Reformation. In this book um, were uh, exhortations to holy living and Christian thought, and it is this very book that was so dear to so many suffering saints that also made its way into the court of Henry VIII through Anne Boleyn. It was Anne who induced the king to read it for himself and even marked several sections of the book with her fingernail in order for the king to pay attention. Who would soon be her husband after the Church of England is established. This, he cried, the king, is a book for me and all kings to read. Is a quote by Henry VIII. The Lord was planting seeds for the Reformation to accelerate in England. Henry had sent several liaisons and summons for Tyndale to return home under the king's protection. But as was Tyndale's resolve and the one note that he sang, he would not come if a vernacular Bible was not approved and disseminated to all the parishes in England. A couple notes here about Henry VIII's court is that uh, Henry VIII, if we recall when we talked about the, the backgrounds and the context of the day, is that Henry VIII was uh, the second monarch in a new dynasty in England, a new monarchy, a Welsh-born family. And in the Tudor uh, monarchy, there was a lot of blurring of the lines between Norman and Saxon. There was this renewed nationalism that no longer is there a French-speaking nobility and a English-speaking laity in England um, or commoners. There became the establishment of um, a new form of English language in this time frame that helped, uh, that was eventually solidified by the distribution of the Bible, by the way. Um, So there's this this renewed sense of nationalism in England, where before, um, not so much. So the Lord here is planting seeds for the Church of England to be established and, and for the Reformation of England to take great strides in Europe. 
A lot of that through Tyndale's work. The king wanted him to come back. Come back under my protection. Uh, but he would not if a, if a vernacular Bible was not approved. Tyndale would then later go on to translate the entirety of the Bible, New and Old Testaments, and smuggle them faster into England than the clergy could burn them. Tyndale was, <clears throat> was a fugitive outside of England for many years. Cologne, he was, he, was, uh, he was discovered in Cologne. He had to flee. He also went to many other different cities. In one of his transits in the North Sea, he actually shipwrecked. And the Lord graciously preserved his manuscripts for further, for further production and study. So Tyndale was, was a man on the run without any church endorsement. You know, today we think about if we are going to make a new translation of the scriptures, certainly it would be done within the walls of the church today. Tyndale did not have that luxury. Tyndale would eventually uh, go on to be betrayed um, by one of the uh, people that was um, hired by the church in order to befriend Tyndale and eventually turned him over to uh, local authorities in, in Germany. And I'll re- I want to read you a few things here about some of his last days. John Piper writes, What did it cost William Tyndale under these hostile circumstances to stay faithful to his calling as a translator of the Bible and a writer of the Reformed faith? He fled his homeland in 1524, and he was eventually killed in 1536. Twelve years of exile and writing. He gives us some glimpse of those twelve years as a fugitive in Germany and the Netherlands in one of the very few personal descriptions we have from Stephen Vaughn's letter in 1531. He refers to my pain, my poverty, my exile out of mind, Sorry, my exile out of my natural country and bitter absence from my friends. My hunger, my thirst, my cold, the great danger wherewith I am everywhere encompassed. And finally, the innumerable other hard and sharp fight, uh, fightings which I endure. All these sufferings came to a climax on 21 May 1535 in the midst of Tyndale's this great... anniversary. Sorry? This is the anniversary. 1535, May 21st. May 21st. Is today the 21st of May? Yep. Praise God. Wow, I didn't even think about that. May 21st, 1535, in the midst of Tyndale's great Old Testament translation labors, we can feel some of the ugliness of what happened in the words of David <coughs> Daniel. Daniel writes, Malice, self-pity, villainy, and deceit were about to destroy everything. Those evils came to the English house in Antwerp, where he was eventually captured, wholly uninvited in the form of an egregious Englishman named Henry Phillips. Phillips had won Tyndale's trust over some months and then betrayed him. John Fox, in Fox's Book of Martyrs, tells us how this happened. Fox writes, So when it was dinner time, Master Tyndale went forth with Phillips, and at the going forth of the Ponce's house, was a long, narrow entry so that the two could not go in front. Mr. Tyndale would have put Phillips before him in this transit, 
but Phillips would not go in, sorry, but Phillips would in no way put Master Tyndale before for that he, for that he pretended to show great humanity. So Master Tyndale, being a man of no great stature, went before, and, and Phillips, a tall, comely person, followed behind him, who had set the officers on either side of the door upon two seats, who, being there, might see who came into the entry. And coming through the same entry, Phillips pointed with his finger over to Master Tyndale's head down to him, that the officers who sat at the door might see that it was he that they should take. And they took him and brought him to the emperor's attorney or prosecute general, where he dined. Then came the uh, procurer general to the house of Ponce and sent away all that was there of Master Tyndale's, as well as his books and other things from whence then Tyndale had to the castle of Vilford. He was sent to Vilford Castle, 18 English miles from Antwerp, and there he remained until he was put to death. Vilford Castle is six miles north of Brussels and about the same distance from Louvain. Here Tyndale stayed for 18 months. The charge was heresy, with not agreeing with the Holy Roman Emperor, and in a nutshell, being a Lutheran. A four-man commission from the Catholic Center of Louvain was authorized to prove that Tyndale was a heretic. One, named Latimus, filled three books with his interactions with Tyndale and said that Tyndale himself wrote a book in prison to defend his chief doctrinal standard, Sola Fide. This was the key issue in the end. The evil translating of the Bible came down to this. Are we justified by faith alone? These months in prison were not easy for Tyndale. They were long, cold, and miserable. We get one glimpse into the prison to see Tyndale's condition and his passion. He wrote in a letter, September 1535, when there seems to have been a lull in the examinations. It was addressed to an unnamed officer of the castle. Here is a condensed version of a translation from Latin. Tyndale writes, I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here through the winter that you will request the commissary to have kindness and send for me from the goods of mine which he has a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from the cold in the head and am afflicted by a perpetual cough which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat a coat also, for which I am very thin, a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My overcoat, my overcoat is worn out and my shirt is also worn out. He has a woolen shirt if he would be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above and also warmer nightcaps. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary, that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and a Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. In return, you may obtain what you most desire, 
so only that it is for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, must ever direct your heart. Amen. W. Tyndale. We don't know if his requests were granted. He did say that in that prison, or he did stay in that prison through the winter, and his verdict was sealed in August 1536. He was formally condemned as a heretic and degraded from the priesthood. Then in early October, traditionally on October 6th, he was tried and then taken to a stake where he was tied and strangled by the executioner and then afterwards consumed in the fires. Fox reports that his last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He was 42 years old, never married, and was actually never buried. So if we think about John Wycliffe, if you remember John Wycliffe's bones were exhumed 40 years after his death and burnt to ashes and thrown in a a river. Tyndale's body was blown to pieces with gunpowder after he was strangled and burnt. And if you think about the implications of what those things mean, you know, we can recall in the scriptures where Jacob and Joseph requested that their bones be transported to the burying place of their, of their parents, their fathers, that had gone before, looking forward and pointing to the hope that they had in the resurrection unto life. Well, these clergymen destroyed Wycliffe's bones and they destroyed Tyndale's bones in order to communicate that they were an anathema and heretics oh, in the church. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah, Erasmus did operate within the, the bounds of the Roman Church. That's right. Yep. And I think a lot of people don't realize that they had a great, great schism that happened, like was it 1453, where the Byzantines was, were, were done away with the Orthodox Church in the East, took a big hit from the Ottoman Turks. And so you have this, this movement of a lot of scripture and a lot of codexes are going to the West, and so you're going to be flooded. By the time he gets born, 50 years later, there's going to be a, 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 a flood that's going to be started of the stuff coming in from these places that have already translated their Bible. Mm-hmm. The, the, the English were one of the last ones to get a Bible. The, 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 the cops already had one in, 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 in Egypt, in Syria. That's They'd right. Been, uh, done it, was, it was only because the Brits had maintained that Roman Catholicism that they were held back. And so it's, an interesting, it's interesting to see how the Lord set this thing up, you know, with, with this movement of all these scriptures and codices, codexes. And all that was going to be available, whether the Roman Catholics liked it or not. Right. Because these people were, were immigrating. Yeah. 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 No, no earthly, worldly power is going to stop God's word. And, and then you look at 1492 and Columbus, all this stuff is happening. He's an infant, you know, and, and the world is changing. And, and 
Mike Force of Economics, they, they did draw a line at 1500. And so that's where you, you end up with people being able to make enough food so that you can afford to have other other professions mm -hmm. where it wasn't just hand them out anymore. That's probably globally. But 1500 is that drawing of that line before and after that. You, you see terrific differences. Most economists that write books on it said they're like a course that stopped at 1500. Right. Maybe everything up to 1500. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that leads me to my conclusion, everyone, is that uh, you know uh, Tyndale's last words were, "Oh Lord, open the King of England's eyes." Not too long after his death, the Church of England was established, and the Great Bible, what's known as the Great Bible, was authorized for distribution in the parishes of England. The Lord is good, and Tyndale was one of the reformers who, like we read in Hebrews 11, the world was not worthy. Um, we really do owe a debt to Tyndale. A couple of the things that Tyndale wrote and distributed really did establish the written English language in a big way. People call him the father of the written English language. But because of Tyndale, a couple of things in the, the Bibles that we read today were directly translated into our, our tongue. For example... Here's a sampling of English paraphrases that we owe to Tyndale. Genesis 1.3, let there be light. Genesis 4.9, I am my, am, I, am I my brother's keeper. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Matthew 16.3, the signs and the times. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Acts 17, 28. In him we live, move, and have our being. These are direct translations from Tyndale. And later on, the 1611 version of the scriptures, or the King James Version, would retain a majority of the New Testament that Tyndale directly translated. So we owe a lot to Tyndale, really to the Lord, uh, for working through this man. And we are just over our time. So are there any questions about anything we've covered today? Okay. All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you've been so gracious to us and have moved through history. We can look back and, in, a, in a way that, <clears throat> that shows you were so faithful to your people. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thankful for you, we're thankful for your word available to us in a language that we can read and study. And Father, we thank you that our church is able to preach that word clearly and openly without persecution. Help us to never take that for granted and inspire us to a greater appreciation for your faithfulness and grace. For it is through faith that we can grow, live, and have our being. And it's through Christ, in whom we have that faith, that we pray. Amen. Thank you.